Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Today's guest is Abby Thiel. She runs a YouTube channel, Abby the Food Scientist. With her PhD in food science and her love of teaching, she creates videos explaining complex food science topics to average consumers. Things like why does bread get stale? What is pasteurization? Abby loves the science behind how food and cooking works and wants to share that passion with the world. If you are enjoying the Food Industry Insider, please follow and subscribe to the podcast. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram. We would really appreciate a five-star review on both Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This is a great zero-cost way to support our show. Hi, Abby. Um, Welcome to our podcast today. I'm really excited to talk to you because I've talked to a lot of people that get into food science on purpose. So we're going to find out how you ended up in the food science area. But also, how do you go from a PhD to a YouTuber? I mean, that's, that's really interesting. So let us know how this all began and where and what led you to YouTube. No, I'm so happy to be here and get a chance to talk to you. So even if you asked me, maybe only five years ago, I would never have guessed this is where I would be. Uh, like, it was not... I, it was kind of, you know, happened by accident, almost as like a hobby turned into more than a hobby. But to start, uh, I think like a lot of people's passion projects, it kind of changed when COVID hit. So in 2020, I was writing my PhD dissertation, which if you've never done a PhD, this is basically, I was trying to write up like five years of research into this huge book. And at the time, I did not really enjoy writing. Like, it really was like pulling teeth every day just to sit at my computer and try to type up this huge document. And in, you know, March 2020, the university shut down, right? We got an email and they're like, you know, you can't go into lab. You can't come to school anymore. All the buildings closed. And in some aspects, I was lucky because my lab work was done. I was just writing, so I could write from my own apartment. But I, I, you know, I lived alone. I didn't see any friends or family anymore. And all I'm supposed to do is write up this, like, huge book. And I started to feel like I was, like, losing my mind. Like, (laughs) I was going a little bonkers. Solitary confinement with an assignment. (laughs) Yes. Yes, and like a big, big assignment. <laughs> and and for, you know, months, actually, it was my boyfriend who had this idea of a food science YouTube channel. It wasn't my idea. Oh, okay. For months, he would bring it up, like, every once in a while. I'll be like, no, I think you should really do this. Like, you, you know, food science is so interesting. And he's not a food scientist, but once he met me, you know, your view kind of changes once you know a food scientist. <laughs> And so he he would bring it up like every month, like you should really do this. This would be such a cool channel and you have all the expertise and you know, such like fun facts. And, but I'd always be like, I'd always make up excuses, right? Like I'm doing my PhD. Like I don't have the time. I don't know. I don't know how to do this. (laughs) And so COVID hit, I was at home alone, supposed to be writing my dissertation and that's when I, it was like the final push. Like, oh, I needed like a creative outlet. I needed some other project. And that's the start of my YouTube channel. Man. All right. So take us back. How did you decide on 
where to go to college and what you were going to do with your life. So I grew up in Wisconsin. And so to me, like the most logical choice was the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And originally I started out in the College of Engineering, actually. Okay. Um, but about a semester in, I started panicking because I didn't think this was the right place for me. Um, and I mean, at the time you're like 18, right? You're so young and you don't even know all the things you can do at this point in your life. And so I basically went to the internet and searched all the science majors at UW-Madison and went through them one by one and made a much shorter list of majors I would be interested in. And one of these was food science. And so this was when I found food science. Like, I kind of thought it was made up or, like, I was like, this is super weird. What science is there behind food? Yeah. So I made, I made a short list, and that was on it. And then I called my older sister, to, who was also at UW-Madison, and I, I kind of gave her, you know, some of the things on my list. And when I said food science, she's like, wait, you would actually love food science. I'm in a class right now because she was a nutritional sciences major. They have to take one food science class. She's like, you need to check this out. <laughs> and so I emailed a professor and, you know, they met with me and kind of gave me the summary of majoring in food science and the jobs. And at that point, like I walked out of that meeting and I was like absolutely switching to food science. So okay. I just knew it was right then. And which part of the food science attracted you the most? Because, you know, there's so many different sides to it besides R&D, quality, sensory. There's all the different ones. Yes. So I would say my specialty, I'd like to call it like the microstructure of food products. Like what is the protein doing? Are the fat globules individually or are they forming a network? Like I like to understand like on the micro level, how are things structured and how that impacts the texture or the taste or like these other aspects of food. Yeah. Cause you know, a lot of people go into food science thinking that they're going to get to cook or bake. Mm-hmm, you know? absolutely. And, and I tell them a lot of times, well, you need to be a culinary person if that's what you want to do, because food science, you might work on a lot of things. You don't even taste any of them. Right. No. And it's, and it's mostly science. I would say I, I wouldn't encourage anyone who wants to like cook or bake on a regular basis. You can like it. I think that is good, but it's, it's really a hard science. Yeah. So you went in for the four-year degree and then you just kept going? Yeah, that is honestly kind of how it happened, I feel like. So I feel like there's a lot of times in my life, just the right opportunity comes around at the right point. So what happened was it was my senior year. It was like the fall. I was going to start my senior year at UW-Madison and just it happened that my advisor was on vacation and I needed him to like verify my class schedule. Otherwise, I couldn't uh, lock in all my classes. So I emailed him and he said, like, oh, crap, I'm out of town and forwards the email to another professor who was in his office that week or something. And so I make a meeting with uh, this professor. And right before the meeting, uh, he got a call from the USDA that his grant was funded for a master's or a PhD student. 
So I walk in right after this call where obviously he's excited, like, he's, you know, another grant was funded. And in walks me, who is graduating in a year. And I think he just, like, put two and two together. And basically when I was starting my senior year, I was offered a place to be a master's student at UW-Madison. And so it it was kind of just the right, I was in the right place at the right time. But I think I understand from reading some things on your background that you bypassed the master's and went on for the PhD. Mm-hmm. Is there an advantage to that? So there's advantages and disadvantages, I would say. And I don't, Every university doesn't do this. So UW-Madison allows you to bypass your master's degree if you want to continue your PhD. And this is useful. So this is what I did because um, the grant was for a PhD student. So I, I planned right away from the beginning to stay through my PhD, which allowed me, if I bypassed, I didn't have to stop and write my master's uh, dissertation or my master's thesis. Instead, I just had to publish an article from my research and defend that. So it saves time because you don't stop to write everything up. That being said, the one thing that scared me always, always for like five straight years was that if I ever left without defending my PhD, I had nothing except my bachelor's degree. So it's kind of like a bet on are you going to make it through or you better make it through <laughs> or you walk away with nothing. More like a guarantee you're going to make it through because you weren't going to walk away from all that work. <laughs> Sometimes it didn't feel like it. <laughs> and, and, and you got out of writing a, a second dissertation, which sounds like after this one, mm-hmm. you're so glad you missed that first one. Oh my goodness. Yes. Yeah. I, I saved myself a lot of pain in the end, I think. Here you are, you graduated with your PhD, and where do you go next? Did you Had you already started the YouTube channel? Yes, so I started, say, like the last six months of my PhD, maybe even a bit less. Uh, so I graduated, I defended my PhD June 2020, and I always dreamed of going abroad after I finished my PhD because I was in the same place for a long time. And I also, during six months of my PhD, I got to go work in Australia. And that was like the best experience ever, just like everything's new. And I met such great people that I knew once I had the chance again, I really wanted to go abroad. But summer of 2020 was not a good uh, time to be looking for jobs abroad. Like people weren't traveling to other countries. Oh, they wouldn't let you you in. Nothing. No, no. So what was really nice is the department chair and my PhD advisor, we kind of struck up a one-year deal where I would stay at UW-Madison and I would lecture and teach and and finish writing up research papers uh, just so that I had, I was, you know, productive, had a job during like such a terrible time when many people didn't have a job. So still at this point, this the YouTube channel was a hobby. Like I would post every now and then and I'd work on videos in the evenings or on the weekends, but I still was like full-time employed at UW-Madison for for one year after my PhD. So what was your first YouTube video? Oh gosh, I don't even remember. I'm really curious. I know very early on I did one about, uh, do you know the candy Airheads? Mm -hmm. I did uh, what the mystery flavor actually is of Airheads. 
because I found that very interesting. Do you know what the mystery flavor is? No. It's so funny. So it's just when they have are like on the manufacturing line and they're making like blueberry airheads and they need to change it to strawberry airheads. The mystery flavor is just the place in the middle where the blueberry accidentally met the strawberry and they sell it as mystery flavor. Oh, what a great thing. I know. It's so smart. But yeah, there's no waste. No waste. And so what's interesting is the mystery flavor is always changing because it's, it depends what flavors they're making in what order. And you don't have to claim anything. You don't have to say it's mostly blueberry or mostly strawberry or mostly mm-hmm. apple or mostly lemon. You can just say it's whatever. Exactly. And uh, yeah, I thought that was genius. That is. I never even thought about that. All right. So, so what other kinds of, do people actually ask you questions so you can put, do something or is it, are you just waiting for your boyfriend to ask you something or a friend to ask you something? (laughs) (laughs) So in the beginning, one of the reasons I was like, this would actually be a good idea is because my friends and family would always message me questions or call me and be like, oh, I accidentally left this meat out overnight. Like, do you think I really have to throw it away? And so, and so like I immediately, once I kind of took the jump to starting the channel, immediately I had so many ideas because people have asked me so many questions over the years. Yeah. Now your clips are not very long. You're, you're answering these questions in like five minutes, right? Yeah, I would say five minutes, 10 minutes. So it's just long enough to have like a full story and explain some actual science. Okay. So what other kinds of things? Because I know that you, well, I know that University of of, uh, of Madison is, is, University of Wisconsin at Madison is very big on dairy. Mm-hmm. No, I definitely have some dairy videos. And actually one of my dairy ones I would say is the most controversial. I get some very interesting comments on a video that I just was explaining why our milk is pasteurized and homogenized. And what's controversial about it? People really like their raw milk. (laughs) And what's wrong with raw milk? Uh, You can get very sick from it. Yes. So especially if you're old or pregnant or a child, uh, there's been a lot of deaths over history from raw milk. So what do you die from? Uh, like a bacterial infection. Oh, okay. So you did a you did a video and told and showed the difference between the two, or just said raw milk was bad. No, I just explained what it meant to be because you know if you you know go shopping at the grocery store, you always see on a milk carton it says like pasteurized and homogenized, and so I just told people what those processes were or why they're done. Oh, and they came back and told you why you should drink raw milk. Yes. So I did not mention, uh, yeah, I didn't really mention raw milk at all. More, I'm more like to show, you know, there's a lot we take for granted with our food supply. And I like to explain, you know, why things are a certain way. Yeah. I saw one of yours. It just happened to pop up. I don't, I didn't watch it. So now you, I'm going to make you almost like redo it for me because I just, I'm not a bread baker, not at all. And uh, my my daughter in law has been baking bread, and she does a really good job. So I was at her house, and she said that I said let's bake some bread together. So we did some sourdough, but we didn't get to the baking part. So she sent it home with me to proof it and and do all that stuff, and and I would do that. 
And so the next day I baked the bread. It came out beautiful. It was beautiful. But the sad part about bread is that it's beautiful right after you make it. And the next day mm-hmm. it's a hockey puck. So I just saw, all I saw was your tagline was, why does my bread get stale? So the funny thing is bread will start staling the moment you take it out of the oven. Like as soon as the temperature starts to lower, it will start staling. And so like what we would call that in scientific terms is starch retrogradation. And what happens is part of the starch starts to crystallize. So at this lower temperature, slowly over time, it crystallizes. And as more and more crystallizes, it gets, you know, more and more like that hockey puck. Now, why does, if I take a loaf of bread, and people have always said this, take a loaf of bread and just get your hands wet and rub it all over the crust and stick it back in the oven. Why does that freshen it back up? Yes. So I would think of that. So the the water you're adding, usually if something is in like a lower concentration, it's more soluble. So you, you're adding water and then also heating it. And both those things help those crystals sort of go back into the water phase, like re-solubilize them instead of being the crystal form, which is uh, what gives you that hard texture. You know, these are the questions that we don't know why, but we know to do it. Mm-hmm. You know, someone says, yeah. trust me, mm-hmm. do this, it'll work. Mm-hmm. And then you do it and it works, but you still walk away going, I have no idea why I just did that. No. And that's, that's the type of stuff I think is really interesting to explain to people because you don't always think that it's a science behind it. You're like, no, it just doesn't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you left here after your year at Wisconsin, you went to the Netherlands. I did. Yes. So finally, I got to study abroad. Uh, well, not study. I was working. <laughs> uh, so I applied for a postdoc at Wageningen University, which is a big like life sciences, food science university in the Netherlands. And so I think it was summer 2022, I flew with two suitcases to the Netherlands to start my job. Wow. Left your boyfriend at home and went, huh? Yes, yes. So I I always say, this is what I've always tell him, because I did move to a different continent. But before that, he moved to a different state for a job. So we already were doing long distance. So he moved first. Okay. All right. The, um, so what did you go, what was your postdoc in the Netherlands for? Yeah, so I joined uh, the dairy group there and I worked on, it was super fun. I worked on like such different projects. So I wasn't, what was nice is I wasn't glued to one research project, which is typically how it is during your PhD. So I worked on research projects that were goat's milk, uh, human milk. Um, also there was one that's looking at, uh, precision fermentation. So using yeast to make, uh, milk proteins like casein. So basically like animal free milk ingredients. So it was like a lot of super cool projects all related to dairy somehow. How is food science different in Europe than it is from the United States? So I wouldn't say like the content or anything is different, but the university and how it's set up is definitely different, which this was really the first time I learned it. So if I would have gotten my bachelor's degree in the Netherlands, it's only three years. So it's one year shorter. 
But what ends up happening is that almost everyone gets a master's degree. So people then go to universities for two more years for a master's degree. But the master's degree itself is very different from an American master's degree because their two years master, uh, the first year is all classes. So you're not in the lab at all doing research. Then the second year is about like six months of doing a research project at the university and like a six month internship at a food company where at least traditionally at UW-Madison, if you did your master's degree, uh, you're really doing research. Like what you're expected to do for two years is like do a research project. So there are actually a lot of differences I've learned. Wait, do you think it's advantageous either way? Do you think one's more was better than the other? Um, I think it depends more. I don't think it depends on how it's set up. It depends more on the type of person and student you are. So I think you can be really successful if you're motivated and driven in either system. If I, and I think I'm more biased towards the American system because that's what I am used to. So, but I, I think either way, you could come out very successful. I mean, it'd be kind of hard a whole year of just classes, not even. I know. Not even an example of how that works. All right. Did you do any internships when you were in the United States before you ever went abroad? I did when I was a bachelor's student still. So I did my first one, say, I think it was uh, right before my junior year. I was at a uh, cheese spray drying manufacturing plant in like northern, northern Wisconsin, like small town Wisconsin. Uh, and that was very eye-opening because it mostly was on manufacturing. So I, I could see every aspect of how um, like the cheese powder from like mac and cheese or like Cheetos and Doritos, those types of products were made. And then my second internship was actually with Nestle, where they do all the Gerber products. So that's in Fremont, Michigan. And I worked on toddler meals, which I was very happy about because then I wasn't on the puree team, which seemed a little gross to me. So I did like the toddler meals where they're like little TV dinners, but there's like, it's for toddlers. It's very cute and tiny. Yeah, well, what, why, did, why did you think the puree would be gross? <laughs> Because they have like savory ones that are like chicken mashed potatoes. And I didn't want to taste that. I didn't want to have to do sensory analysis on that. Oh, well, I don't know. I never saw those. But so you were on the ones where they actually had to chew something up, like it actually had a noodle or a piece of food. Yes. Or they or they have like toddler snacks, which some were just like mini Cheetos. And I'd be like, oh, I'll have a whole can of these little Cheetos. Yes. Yeah, no, and so you were learning the manufacturer side of it, not the product development side? So no, the second internship with Gerber was product development. So I had two very different internships, which I think was really wonderful. What was the hardest part about doing baby food? Oh, the like legal aspects. Everything is so much more strict when it comes to baby foods, like the amounts of heavy metals, the pesticides, that type of thing. Or thinking about, like, what size should this piece of food be? What is appropriate? And that was just very eye-opening to me because I had never thought about baby food like that before. I mean, you had to have it 100% natural, too. You can put colors in it or anything. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-mm. No, it's so strict. It's, you know, minimal ingredients. Everything is there for a reason. And I remember it must have been when in my first week, uh, a coworker was working on one of those, a toddler meal. It had like uh, turkey in it. It was like slices of turkey with gravy or something. And she was having us do some sensory analysis on it and asking just like practice, like, what do you think? And then she's like, well, this actually doesn't matter because the arsenic is too high in this turkey. And I'm like, I just ate this. I ate this turkey. How could you give that to me? And she was like, no, this turkey would be fine in any other food, any other product, but not baby food. So you're eating this level of arsenic anyways in your other food. Now, did they do sensory with kids? They do. And I did get to go see this place. So it wasn't attached to our work facility. It was in a bigger town. And it was like all these cubicles with like a high chair in it. And parents would bring their toddlers, which was very chaotic because, you know, the kids are supposed to be in the high chair and strapped in. And then you bring over the food samples and the parents record their response. Did they like it? Did they not? But like there's kids crying and singing and trying to crawl out of the high chair. And it's like, we can't give them the food unless they're strapped in. And the parents like, they're not going to be strapped in. I'm sorry. So it was like a very loud work day when I was there. You know, they say there's only two food products that we have difficulty in the marketing. And one is baby food. And the other is pet food. Because the person who consumes it, or person as in pet, is not the one, the one who consumes is not the one who purchases it. So you could have, yes. you could have, if people perceive this baby food as healthy and it could taste disgusting, mm-hmm. the parents are going to feed it to the kids because they say, it's, mm-hmm. it, I perceive this to be healthy. Or, or the label makes it sound so delicious and it tastes terrible. Or... And, and what you think, like, I'm surprised you said that they had you taste stuff because I have grandchildren and some of the things that they eat, I would never eat because they are terrible tasting. Like sometimes when they're real little, they don't like any salt. There's no salt. There's no pepper. There's no seasoning. And these kids are eating it up like it's the most delicious thing. My, my first grandchild, she ate a blend of venison and oatmeal or rice, you know, so oat cereal or rice cereal and breast milk. And that's what, and it looked like wallpaper paste. And she ate that like it was the most delicious thing in the whole world. And there's no way any adult was going to taste it. None of us would taste it. We were just like, her her mom mixed it up because she thought it would be healthy for her. And it was gross. And she ate that. She ate it for like six months. She, that was her favorite dinner. Yeah. So that's why I just figured that they would never do sensory with adults because the rest of the adults would say this tastes terrible, but the baby said it's wonderful or vice versa. What we think is good. And because there's sometimes I'll, I'll eat something and I'll feed it to my grandchildren and it's too strong for them. You know, it's, it has too much flavor, so it's too sweet, too salty, whatever. And so we can't feed it to them. So that's interesting that she had you, had you ha- have your arsenic turkey. <laughs> yes, yes, I will never forget that. I didn't know there was arsenic in turkey. Did you know there was arsenic in turkey? 
No, no. Or maybe, I don't know. Maybe it was some other ingredient in the turkey dish. Yeah, yeah. I can't quite remember. Maybe you should do a YouTube video on that. Yes. Yes. You have to call yes. her and ask her what it what it was. This was like 10 years ago. <laughs> Does the University of Wisconsin advocate for a lot of the students to do internships? Oh, absolutely. I, I think so companies will usually come in starting September and like the school year starts in September and they will come and do a presentation to the food science club and then they'll be there for a career fair. So everyone in my class was applying and getting internships. It would be very weird if you did not have internships during your undergrad career. When you did an internship, did you have to do it like in the summer or did you take a semester off? No. So most, uh, it almost always was a summer internship. So they set it up so you aren't taking any time off. So I would work June, July, and August, say, was the internships because at least The curriculum at UW-Madison, if you took a semester off, you actually got a year behind because the classes for food science are only offered once a year. So, no, everyone always did a summer internship. Um, You had met one of my uh, previous guests, Monica Caparosa, at the Mm -hmm. University of Wisconsin because she was there to do her master's. Now, how did you two meet? Yes. So we, she was my lab mate. So we both have the same PhD advisor, uh, Rich Hartel, who is all into like ice cream and candy. So I studied the microstructure of ice cream. Then Monica came a year or two after uh, I started my PhD and she studied candy. So we were in the same lab, same lab, same offices. And so I saw immediately when you and her did the episode. Yes. She, she's had, she's been quite uh, instrumental in the uh, in doing internships. I don't I don't think I've met anybody that has done more internships no. than her. And she's done them in all different kinds of things and then she also it it did extend her education another year because she took a couple internships that were during the semester. I will say like the internships you learn so much though that it's absolutely worth it. You learn very different things than you even learn in the classroom. Well, I think it probably gives you a chance to try something that's way out of your comfort zone because I learned through the conversation with Monica, I thought she did every one of her internships in research and development and she didn't. She did them in quality assurance, she did them in manufacturing. And I was quite like, I just couldn't picture her putting that hard hat on and going into the plant. And she did. And she said she liked it. And it, I think it gives you more career choices. I've also done a manufacturing uh, one. My first one, like I said, was manufacturing. And it also gives you a much greater appreciation. For what? For like every step in the process. So sometimes R&D or product developers make a change and they don't think about what the the like guys on the line do step by step. And then the guys that work in the plants will be like so frustrated. Why did they make this change? It's so annoying and it doesn't make sense to do it this way because the product developers aren't in the plants enough to realize how it works. Now, do most of the product development people go down into the plant to see? Uh, they, they might, but they're probably there on like the launch day or the first run or two. 
Now you, what were you doing in the Netherlands? What kind of products were you working on there? Yes. So we did a lot of more basic research. So mostly we would get cow's milk, goat's milk, human milk, and see uh, other differences from like the genetics of the cows. Can we pinpoint how the milk is different or something like that? With the human milk, we usually would do projects relating to our specific compounds that are in mother's milk related to a baby's health outcome or something like that. So it wasn't very, it's not like I was working on something that would be sold in the grocery store. It more was ingredients or health and functionality. Now, did you enjoy living in the Netherlands? I loved living in the Netherlands. Yes, it's quite different, uh, but I really enjoyed my life there. My job was the perfect job for me, but obviously I was very far away from my boyfriend, my family, and my friends, which was the the downside. Yeah. Now, how is it different? So just your daily life is different because it is true. They You bike everywhere. So every day, I never drove a car while I was there. Every day, I biked seven minutes to work. On the way home, I would stop at the grocery store that was right on the way, grab, like everyone just grabs what they need for that night, and then go home. So one no car. Very weird to me. And so I'd either bike. If I wanted to go on like a vacation or somewhere new, I would just take a bus or a train, like great public transport. Um, Also, people are much more, I would say, people in the Netherlands have more work-life balance compared to Americans. So I had to get very used to taking a morning coffee break and an afternoon coffee break. So at say like 10 30 a whole group might go take a coffee break like you and all your coworkers take a break at the same time get a coffee like sit down and chit chat and this was so weird to me because i had just done my phd and i was like i have no breaks like i'm going like 8 a.m to 10 p.m like there's no breaks in my schedule and then the dutch people would just look at me like i had lost my mind like like, uh, they just, they don't see that as like a good thing that you're working all the time where I think Americans are like, wow, you're really hustling and Dutch people are like, you should not, you should. <laughs> yeah. Could you imagine a review you would get from an employer? They would be like, well, yeah. you know, you didn't try very hard cause you took two breaks every day and lunch and you went to lunch. So, I mean, cause how long was your, if you took a break at 1030, did you take a 30 minute break or a 15? What was it? Yeah, it it could vary day by day. Like no one was timing. It could be 15 minutes. It could be 30 minutes. Yeah. Okay. And then you turn around, you go to lunch and then you come back and take another break. And did they work eight to five? Uh, no, it was, it's not that strict at the university. So you, you, I, you don't really keep track of it. Like you just are supposed to get your job done. <laughs> so that's what I'm saying. Like we don't, that's unheard of here. People would if you take mm-hmm. lunch, two breaks, and you didn't come in till nine and you left at four, you must be a real slacker. <laughs> yes. So I I had to have people sit, explain it to me because absolutely when I arrived there, I was like, these people, they're, they, I don't know what they're doing. But then a Dutch person said to me like very directly was like, we believe that you need to take breaks to work your hardest. That if you're not taking a break, you're actually doing a disservice to the company or the university because you're not 
as mentally strong as you would be if you just gave yourself like a little break. Oh, wouldn't that be nice here? Yeah, I know. It's really nice. <laughs> no. I mean, some union jobs, they tell them they have to have 15 minute breaks, but they're not doing it for their mental health. They're doing it because somebody has to sit down for 15 minutes. But that is super interesting. So how's how? what's the big difference in food between the United States and the Netherlands? Mm, for me, as someone who grew up in Wisconsin, I'm very used to like eating cheddar cheese all the time. Like cheddar, oh, aged cheddar, my favorite cheese. In the Netherlands, there's no cheddar. It's all Gouda. Gouda cheese everywhere. Wow. <laughs> yes. They don't, they don't appreciate, what's the, what's the difference between Gouda and cheddar when you make it? Why can't they make cheddar? So it's, it, it is somewhat similar, but to make a cheddar, there's like the cheddaring process, which is you like stack the curds up and drain out more of the whey, but, but they're not that different, but different enough that you would know. Mm-hmm. So they did, so you couldn't make any, get them to make any cheddar there, huh? <laughs> No, and and Gouda is a Dutch cheese, mm-hmm. and I I'm not sure where cheddar was invented, but maybe it was the U.S. So that might explain the differences. What any other differences in the food? Um, yes, no sauces. Like I love having like a honey mustard, a ketchup, like mayonnaise, like some sweet and sour sauce. But I thought the food was very dry there, and I. Almost every day, my friend would hear me at lunch being like, oh, I really wish this had a sauce on it. It's really, it's really not moist enough for me to be eating this. So no condiment type of things. Yeah, very rarely. Or like they'll eat mayo with French fries. So they'll do that almost always. But like an American, if you have like a hamburger or some type of sandwich, you usually will like add a sauce to kind of add some moisture. Mm -hmm. Where I found Dutch food to be very hard and dry compared to American food. Do they have fast food restaurants there of ours, McDonald's, Burger King? They have them? They absolutely do. What's interesting, though, is it's not really drive-through based. Like, there is a drive-through, but because no one is in their car, like, everyone's biking, the drive-through is not busy. Usually, we'll, like, go inside and eat. Yeah, but how's the food? Is it the same as we have here, or do they make it more Dutch? No, I think actually the Dutch McDonald's wasn't too different. Yeah, I can't think of anything. I went there maybe twice, but they don't don't remember any big differences. Because I always think that's interesting to go to to American restaurants in other countries, and they actually put more emphasis on what that country eats than what a McDonald's or a Burger King actually sells. And then you know, so did you? Did you ever have an opportunity to cook any American foods for your new friends? I did. I did because uh, the apartment I rented was below a couple that was also my age. So I would have dinner with them and we kind of switched off. And it it is funny because one time I made like a lasagna, like a normal, what I would consider a normal American lasagna, like tomato sauce, noodles, beef, cheese. And I bring it upstairs to my neighbors and we start eating it. And one of them goes, oh, it's American lasagna. And I was like, this is normal lasagna. What would they do different? Put Gouda cheese in it, probably. Yeah, I I think maybe they would have added, like, actual vegetables. I think they weren't used to, like, so much meat and so much cheese was 
was my guess. Yes. I think they eat healthier than we do, don't they? Yes. I think in general. Mm-hmm. Didn't it snow there a lot? It doesn't. I lived there for two years and very, a very small amount of snow. And it always went away by like 11 a.m. Like okay. it, it doesn't stick. But I was just there to visit last week. And they got a lot of snow, like inches of snow, and it was staying. So it was very, very weird weather. That is weird because you talked about riding bikes. I'm just trying to figure out how you rode bikes in the winter with the snow. Their winter is very weird. It rains all the time instead of snowing. Wow. Sounds like Pittsburgh to me because all it does is rain here. So <laughs> so when you said you were doing your YouTube uh, videos all by yourself, set up your camera, do the whole thing yourself, all the editing. Yes. All right. So, and you got your, your questions or so from, from people. And did mm-hmm. you ever, did, what kind of research did you do beforehand? And I don't mean just scientific open a book, but did you make the products? Did you, what did you do? It really depends on the video. So I would say the most time I spend is reading books or articles, like just doing like a literature search and then trying to think like, how can I make this intriguing to an an average person? Like what, what types of questions would they have? So a lot of times I don't have to make a product, although there's videos where I do, like I was talking about how to fry the perfect egg or why does chocolate bloom when it gets that like white surface. So like videos like that, where I can Absolutely. I'm, I'm, you know, making the product or something like that. Um, and, but it's not always, a lot of times I spend more time thinking about how can I explain this in a way like an eighth grader could understand. Have you had any that you had to debunk? Like people came to you and said, this is this, and you're going to debunk it and say, no, that's not really what happens. One that comes to mind is a couple of years ago, like Himalayan pink salt was very big. And I feel like people are always making these like crazy claims that it can cure this or heal that when really it's mostly sodium chloride, which is what table salt actually is. Like there's such small differences and like the color that, which is a really pretty pink color. I like it, don't get me wrong, but it's really just like from the soil or the mine, it's like dirt particles that are that color that make it pink. So it's, it's nothing magical. So I made a video about that. Oh, there's no special minerals in it or anything? It has, most salt will have like trace amounts of a bunch of other minerals, like a hundred different ones, but it's so small that it's, it's like minuscule. And if you ever see, I think there's also like a Hawaiian black salt or something mm-hmm. like that i've seen black it really the color yes the color is just like the the soil or the dirt or the ash is black there the color isn't uh like some health beneficial compound yeah so i have some salt i got as a sample somewhere it's celtic and it's gray oh it looks like gravel so i look at it and i'm like i'm not sure i want to put this on my food it looks like somebody brought it in from the driveway you know, but, but I have heard that, you know, I, I can't debunk any of this. I'm not a scientist, but some of those salt ones were that they tell you the trace minerals or what they're trying to tell you is important. And I always find, you know, like, I don't know, maybe they are, maybe they aren't, but, 
But my favorite thing about some of these things is that you will see expiration dates on salt. You know, expiration dates on vanilla. They don't have any expiration. And they will, and so the food manufacturer, you pick up a canister of salt, you turn it over, and you're like, this expires in 2026. And I thought, no, it doesn't. It's been here for millions of years, and it will be here for millions of years, as long as I don't get it wet. It will be millions of years afterwards. But they put an expiration date on it. You should do one about that. Wait, I actually did do that. Did you? Uh huh, uh huh. Because I agree, it's a, it's one hundred percent a lie. Well, a lie is kind of an overstatement, but people assume it's a, it's a safety concern, and it's not. It's a quality issue. Well, it's not even a quality issue. The company, the, the somebody in the government somewhere says you have to have an expiration date, so they're like, uh, okay, let me guess that one. And I always tell my friends that expiration dates or Best Buy or, you know, mm-hmm. Better Buy. I said, those are all, I said, they're all swags, which is a scientific wild ass guess. I said, <laughs> they don't know. Cause I have friends who will take it to an extreme. They'll look at it and say, oh, this yogurt expired yesterday and they'll throw it away. And I'm like, no, 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 no. They just guessed it was going to be today. They said, if you open it up and it looks like yogurt, it smells like yogurt, tastes like yogurt, eat it. It will not, it's not a problem. But you can't go down to, I had another friend, hopefully she won't watch this, that she, (laughs) she would, she would buy a package of chicken. It says expires by, let's just say right now, expires by February 1st. Okay, she'll put it in the freezer. It says use or freeze by February 1st. So she put it in the freezer on February 1st. She would go back in the freezer, clean it out like she would clean her freezer like every two or three weeks and she would throw it away. And I said, why are you doing that? It said use or freeze by. You can freeze it for six months. And she would be like, and she'd been doing it for years and years. She'd been throwing food away. And I told her, I said, if you're going to do that, you have to go shopping every single day for whatever you're having for dinner because you're going to throw everything away. You're going to have nothing in that freezer. And she would put all of her food in the refrigerator, all of it, bread, cookies, everything. She thought you were supposed to put all your food in the refrigerator. Oh, no. <laughs> Coming, uh, she came to work for us and we, we set her straight. It took us a couple of years to get it all, all straight. <laughs> Because I don't know if you've ever done a YouTube on this. You should do this one. Have you ever done why you should not open the oven door when baking a cake? Oh, no. And the reason you should do it is because she came to us and she said someone in the office was baking a cake for their child's birthday. And they got really, really mad at their husband because he opened the oven and the cake fell. Mm. And I said, oh, no. And she's listening and she goes, is that why cakes fall? And I said, well, that's one of the reasons you can't open the oven. Why it's, why it's this. She goes, I never knew that. She goes, every time I baked a cake, I would check it lots of times and they all fell. Oh no. And, and so we purposely that next day I went home, got a cake mix and I brought it back to the office and I looked nowhere on the box. Does it tell you not to open the oven? And I thought, it's only old people who know that. 
if you're a young person, you've never baked a cake. And I mean, like if you're making French fries, what do you do? You open the oven several times, check to make sure they're not burning, right? You know? So here was a cake and she had done, you know, she, every cake she, so she had never baked a cake in years. So she went out that night and bought a, you know, got a cake mix and she baked it and didn't open the oven. And I told her, I said, just trust the timer, you know, the minimum time. And then you can slowly check it, but trust the timer. So she baked a cake and it rose. She brought it the next day to work. She baked a cake almost every day for like two weeks because she just wanted to prove that they wouldn't fall. And I said, you have to stop baking cakes. We can't do this anymore. But she had no idea that opening the oven door caused the cake to fall. So see, you should do one because the cake, the, the cake mix companies do not put that on their, on their boxes. And they should. Because these young people who've never had home ec, you know, schools don't do home ec anymore. And they don't do, um, the, you know, people don't have cooking classes. So unless their mother told them, and in this case, she would never have told her child this because she didn't know. And her mother had never told her because her mother never baked a cake either. So she didn't. Yeah. So do one on that. I will. That's a very good idea. I like it. You're going to have to test it because for some reason, I feel like somehow they've made these foolproof now that you can't open the oven and it won't fall. But I don't know about that either. What, what other YouTube, um, what, are your, what has been your most popular video that you've done? So the most popular is actually one that I think is the most controversial, even worse than uh, the pasteurized and homogenized milk. And that's, I did a year or so ago, the U.S. Congress came out with the laws about bioengineered foods. And so I did a video explaining basically what the law said, because you know, like when they write these things up, it's not very reader friendly. So I, I sort of summarize what, what is a bioengineered food, which is like the new word for a genetically modified food. And people really did not like that. What didn't they like? I kept it very, because I knew this would be controversial. I kept it very, like, this is what the law says. Like, let me interpret the law for you because it's written in such a way that no one understands it. I didn't say any opinion because I knew everyone would have an opinion. So I kept it very like tight, but then, but then everyone did leave me their opinion. Yeah. And their opinion was that they didn't like them or they, what was their opinion? Yeah. Most of it was like, I mean, I got really, really weird comments. Like this is the government is trying to kill us. Like this is leading to these diseases. Like, you shouldn't be talking about this. Like I got, it's, it's mostly worse than that, but I don't want to say all the bad comments, but I eventually just turned the comments off. Cause it was like, it was, it was crazy. Oh, a bunch of conspiracy theories, right? Yes, absolutely. Oh yeah. Yeah. Cause <laughs> they don't understand the terminology. What is your, who is your audience? Who, who are the people that are watching you? So I think right now, most of it, so you can kind of see on YouTube, most of my audience is in the category of like 18 to 35. And uh, it's kind of funny when I went back to visit my old university in the Netherlands last week, I sat down in my like first meeting and one of the uh, master's students looks at me and goes, 
I just watched a new video. So, so uh, a lot of food science students as well. Well, that's good. How many videos have you done so far? It's getting near 150. But that being said, um, right now is the first time I don't have like a full-time job. So I, my job ended in the Netherlands in September. And so these are the first couple of months that I'm like, like spending, like, this is my job. Like I'm making videos. And how many hours a day do you spend doing it? Oh, I would guess probably eight. Like it's enough that I could spend like a full-time job doing it, but it's because I do like every step myself. And it's not even that filming takes very long. What takes the longest is editing the videos. And I also don't like to edit. That's like my least favorite step. So I, it just takes so long. Oh yeah. I don't do the editing myself. I have somebody else do all of that. This, that's uh, <laughs> yes, I, I do not have IT in my background whatsoever. Not in my blood at all. So do you, do you uh, release yours on a regular schedule? Yes. So I'm trying to stick to every Tuesday. I'll have a new food video out and like one I'm working on, actually one I'm very excited about uh, is, I think I'll name it something like you're eating glass or your food is a glass. And I want to explain what the glassy state is. So that's like when something isn't quite a solid or something isn't quite a liquid, we say it's a glass. So like that's like hard candy, uh, some pasta, some cereal. And I think a lot of people have never heard of it. So I'm very excited. Oh, they're going to think you're going to eat glass right there on the video. <laughs> oh, for sure. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> my my brothers had a friend in high school, two brothers that ate glass. They did. They ate Coke bottles. They would chew on glass and swallow it and show everybody how they did it. And we no. don't know. And they never got sick from it or anything. I don't know how they did it. I will not be doing that for this video. I will mostly be eating candy. I don't think anybody should do that. No way. But I've never heard of food having a glass state. I never heard of that. So have you, ha have you done any that were a disaster that never made it to the, uh, into the YouTube? I don't think I've totally scrapped anything I maybe reshot it or saved it for later. Or there's times I get very frustrated with one video or one topic and I just ignore it and I come back at, you know, come back to it a month or two later with more energy and then I like finish it. But nothing has been like, this is an absolute total disaster. I'm stopping. Have you had any questions posed to you that you're like, no, I'm not doing that? Some of them have got to be boring questions. Some of them I look at it and I'm like, I can't even believe you asked me that. That is so boring. Well, you said that somebody asked you one time, I left the food out for this many hours. Can I eat it? That's a short video. No, don't eat it. That's very true. It's, I get, I mean, I get more questions than I can possibly make into videos at this point. Like my idealist is so long and only getting longer, but people it's not that people propose bad ideas to me. It's just that I'm not sure I could make it into an interesting video is, is what I'm trying to be more like strategic about. Like, is the audience for this quite wide or is this very, very, very niche and not worth my time? Yeah. Has anybody ever asked you a question you don't know the answer and 
you don't, and you still can't even figure it out. You don't feel like you're the expert to do it. I mean, a lot of times I get questions where I need to do research. So it's not like I knew all of these topics off the top of my head. Like I, I am always reading for fun. Like I'm reading about food and uh, textbooks. Like I just like to learn, but I, I feel for the most part, if I get a question and I, I have the time, I can figure it out at least somewhat. So nothing, nothing comes to mind that's been super crazy. When I'm gonna, I'm gonna really date myself for a second here. When I was in col, when I was in college, we had a college course, and is actually with with lecture and lab called microwave technology, because the new invention was the microwave oven. Yeah, you're going, oh my, how old is she? Okay, so the microwaves then are nothing like what they are now. It's like, you know, an Instapot is a pressure cooker. But now it's a pressure cooker with about 15 or 20 settings. I don't know why they're on there. Well, a microwave back then, you could roast prime rib. You could do bake cakes, cupcakes, do bread. They, you could do everything in a microwave oven that you could do in a regular oven. They used to have probes that were on a wire that came out and you would stick it in the prime rib. We made prime rib in this class. This was a cooking class, I'm telling you, because we made everything. Wow. And at the time, they had a new invention out. And our professor was very excited to show us this because he had been sent this by a food company. And it wasn't on the market yet. So we were really excited. We were the first time we were getting to taste this. And it was microwave popcorn. Oh, my God. Yeah. So what, so what you think is totally normal, you have it all the time. We had never had it before. So we were, we were all living on air pop at college, which is gross. And then your other alternative was in the oil which if you weren't really good at making popcorn, it was kind of an art form. You either were on the burn side or the greasy side. So here we have microwave popcorn that was absolutely perfect. And we all got one handful. And it didn't come out on the market till three years after I graduated. Wow. So I had it in college and didn't see it again for three years, at least on mass market. But more importantly... The microwaves had changed so much. They went from, you know what? They figured it out. These people are never going to cook in this. This is too much of a learning curve. They're just going to reheat in it or, or now reheat and pop popcorn. So they gave up. That's why your microwave doesn't have very many buttons anymore. I mean, seriously, this is half the number it used to have. And so the reason I, the reason I bring this up is that my husband would do this to me all the time. And my kids once in a while, my husband was really bad about it. He'd always stand in front of the microwave with the door open going, how do I do this? I'm like, I don't know. And so now I, ha- now I just come up with the answers because they'll, he'll, he'll say, well, you're a little Miss Microwave. So tell me, what do I do? And so I would say, well, put it on 50% power and put it on for this long. But to this day, I don't think he puts anything in the microwave without turning to me going, so how long do you think I should do that? (laughs) Especially reheating something. He's like, well, how long? 
And so in college, you could go, at least my college, you could go and get a four, it was a four credit class to, in microwave technology. And to this day, nobody, I, I can't imagine doing a prime rib in the microwave, but we did a beautiful prime rib in the microwave. We did cakes. We make bread. We, everything you do in a regular oven, we did it. Wow. And it all come, came out wonderful. And the microwaves were bigger back then. Like how big? You could put a turkey in it. Oh my. <laughs> Yeah, this is this was a very funny thing that what we were learning is the new frontier. Obviously, didn't happen. By the way, I should bring up at the time the same professor taught several different classes, and he he I, I forget what other class I had him for, but he came in with another invention that we were all like, "Wow, I can't believe you have one of those." We'd heard about it, but we hadn't seen it yet, and that was the cordless phone. No. Yes. He showed, he showed us how he, he said he could go all the way to the mailbox and still be talking to somebody on the cordless phone. Then it was driveway. Oh, oh yeah. So I know. You think it's funny because you've never lived your life without cordless phones or cell phones. You've never lived your life without cell phones. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In your whole life, it's been the cell phone, been the, the, uh, microwave's been there. All these things I'm telling you that I was there when they first came out. You've had those your whole life. Yes. When I was a kid and I started like cooking, cooking in quotes, I only cooked with the microwave. Like I had like Easy Mac, you know? I know. And I just laugh. But what I really, I think is a shame is evidently the technology is there for the microwave to do way more than it does. And they just felt like the general public wasn't, wasn't going to learn it. So they wouldn't do it. It's like an Instapot. I don't even own one. And I never really like cooking with pressure cookers, but I've looked at some recipes recently and I said, I should get a pressure cooker. And someone goes, oh, you should get an Instapot. I'm thinking, no, an Instapot is just a pressure cooker with a bunch of extra buttons. I don't think I'm going to go that route. Not at all. What are some of the other YouTube videos that you've done recently that you've gotten some good feedback on? Oh, I, in like early January, I did a very fun one, or at least it was fun for me to, to make. So I did like five up and coming food science trends for 2024, where I kind of looked like what's in the very near future. And I, I, all this stuff really intrigued me. Oh, what were they? I'll go watch it, but you can tell me what, what they were. Yes, yes, yeah. So I put at number one was um, cultivated meat, like cultivating animal cells in a bioreactor and then arranging them into like muscle and then selling that as like, like it is animal meat, but you didn't have to slaughter right. an animal. Um, and I said that was number one because I think actually that might happen this year, at least in the U.S., in Singapore, mm -hmm. uh, just because the regulation is is in place where most of the EU, this is illegal to sell, even if they had a commercial product. Right. So that was uh, number one for me. I also, I've been watching this uh, brand of beanless coffee for a couple of years. So the brand is Atamo Coffee, and they basically like backwards constructed coffee without the coffee bean. 
so they they source like the the very important like flavors or colors or ingredients from other natural sources and then sort of mix them all together and they have a product but it's only sold in new york city so far what are they trying to do save the coffee bean yes so i was also confused i was like what is the purpose of this but then i started looking into it and it's uh coffee farmers are having a very hard time because the temperature is getting too warm to grow the coffee beans and so what ends up happening is they will try to move to higher altitudes to to compensate but typically that means that they have to cut down the forest at the higher altitude so they're deforesting as they're trying to move their coffee plantation so so it's a way to make coffee without going going through that hassle, I guess. Okay. What are some other trends? That coffee I never heard of. The chicken one I've heard. And then this one is uh, precision fermentation. And I'm still involved in uh, projects back in the Netherlands about precision fermentation, which this is just using like uh, bacteria or yeast or mold, using these cells as like little factories. And you basically take like, the cow obviously has has instructions to make milk protein. Can we take those instructions, give them to a yeast, and can we just have a bunch of yeast cells make the milk protein? So it's it's a way to get animal identical ingredients, but without uh, slaughtering the animals again. Okay. And I think that's very interesting. And actually, in the U.S., there is one ingredient out that was made using precision fermentation. And that's, uh, have you heard of the company Perfect Day? They're in California. And they, yeah, they have on the market a whey protein that is made by a microorganism instead of from a cow. Oh, okay. All right. And then you said there were five of them. So that was three. What's your other one? I know. I'm trying to remember. It's under, oh. under pressure. Oh, I'm sorry. We'll we'll just watch the video then. We'll watch the video and that's <laughs> that's what you choose. You say, well, watch. When did it come out? You said early January. So we'll we'll go back early January and look for look for that one. I should have told you to have a list in front of you of ones you wanted us to see. <laughs> the. Uh, has anybody ever asked you a couple that we were like, you know, that's really boring. I'm not, what am I going to get? Like a two, three minute one? I can't even imagine. Now, you don't do anything like how it's made type of stuff, do you? Do you go into something like that in any of your YouTubes? Like explain to people how they make something? So I've done a couple like that, mostly on, I have one on whipped cream and ice cream because I find these products very interesting and my PhD was on the structure of both those products. So I have videos saying like, okay, with whipped cream, which is easier, let's take whipped cream. You start with uh, like uh, heavy with a milk and you shake it. And then I explain like you're shaking it but while you're doing that, this is what is happening to like the fat globules. Like here's how the structure is changing. And I try to make like little cartoons that show what's happening to each of the ingredients in the food. And I really like to explain that on like the micro scale. I think that's very interesting video. So I've done a couple like that. Have you ever gotten a question where you're like, that's a great idea. Go out and research it. And I don't mean the answer, but go out and find out that 30 other people have done a video on that. 
And have you ever said, I'm not going to do one. Everybody has done one on how to, let me give an example, like how to take heavy whipping cream and make butter. So I'm not going to do that one. Have you ever, has that ever deterred you from doing one? You know, it actually hasn't, but I have, I have that thought, but I've talked to my boyfriend about it. We had a conversation like years ago about this and he says, it doesn't matter if someone else has done it because that person is not you and that person is probably not a food scientist. So like, I always put like my own spin on it from my own experience and my education So I don't usually let that hold me back because it will always be different. It will be different because it's my video. Yeah, because I I have gone out there, you know, to look up something. I don't I don't care what it is, and I'll look something up and I'll be like, there are like thirty videos on this. Why did everybody make a video? I just needed one answer, you know. So I maybe go with the top answer, but I will notice that. I just wonder if that ever deterred you, like. Everybody has done this. I'm not going to do this, you know. And and your and your boyfriend's right. People will follow you, and they haven't seen the other thirty of them. What what does your future look like? Are you are you thinking this YouTube is your is going to be your profession, or what? What do you want to do? Got you have this PhD. You have all this knowledge. How are you going to share it with the world? <laughs> yes, you sound like my parents. Like you got your PhD. What are you What are you doing? No, I have. I have a big plan. So this is just the first step. So with my YouTube channel right now, I'm kind of doing like videos that are like fun facts or fun videos that like people don't realize the science behind their food. But very soon I would like to make like my own courses like Food Science 101 or Food Microbiology 101. And then, you know, kind of go from there. So there's a lot of like online platforms that can host an online course for me. And I really love teaching whenever I've taught at university. I, it's like such a fulfilling job. So I, I plan to continue that, but just like slightly different because my YouTube channel is teaching people. It's just teaching a different set of people and in a different way. Mm-hmm. But I actually use a lot of skills I learned throughout my PhD and my postdoc. Do you have any aspirations to maybe do a research and development job in a in a food company or an ingredient company? So I don't think at this time. I think if I went back to a full time job, it would probably be at university and be te- like being a teacher or a, or a lecturer um, because I haven't been in the food industry for like ten or so years. Every once in a while, I have been doing, because now I work from home, I'll do a consulting project a couple hours. So I I love problem solving, but I don't think I would do a full-time position. At least right now when my dreams are very very big and I have yet to be like disappointed and be like, I got to go back to the real world. Well, I don't know. I I, I met a woman who had settled her life. She was like you. She was going to do... Um, her P, she did her PhD and then she was going to stay and be a professor. And she, and she started down that road. She was professor for three years and her school gave a weird option. If you wanted to leave for six months and work in industry, they would arrange it and you would go work in industry. And then you can come back, you know, you're only missing, if you did the, you missed the, let's say the spring semester and the summer, 
you'd come back in September and continue on your teaching. And they would, I don't want to say they hold your spot because they never gave it up. I mean, they just, that, you didn't have a right. class in the spring. And so she did that. And she got out into working in the, into a lab and she never went back to the university. Wow. She convinced the company to keep her and they kept her. And um, when I caught up with her, she'd been there three years. And she said, I'm so glad that I didn't, that I had this opportunity. And all I could think of is she was like the Amish where they let them go out when they're 16 and see the real world (laughs) and see if you want to come back or not. And she was like, nope. She said, I got a taste of it. And she liked the business. She liked, uh, it was an R&D job and she got to do a little QA and then she moved into R&D and I was doing R&D and she said, I really liked it. So she never, she never went back to the university, basically lost their professor. I don't know. I, I don't know how they felt about it because I think what, I think their end game was that they would now have a professor who had industry experience because a lot of people say mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. there's so many professors out there that do not have any industry experience. And there's two sides to that. Some people say that's great you know, very academic and other ones saying, well, they don't know what's going on in food companies or whatever company their industry is and that they should know. And so they can teach and guide the students in it. So I think that's what the university's end game was, is that they would get back professors that could say, I worked for six months in industry and let them do this every three years that they would, you know, that would add to their, their teaching. But for her, she hightailed it out of there. <laughs> oh, I do think your point about there's so many professors that haven't worked in the food industry is true. And when I was doing my bachelor's degree, we had one lecturer. His name was Hans. And he, it was kind of like his retirement job. He came to lecture, because, but he had worked on like Pillsbury products and like General Mills. And he had the best stories during his lecture because he'd be like, oh, yeah, when we were trying to make toaster strudels, here's everything that went wrong. And it's so, it's so cool. (laughs) Well, it's enlightening and, you know, it's real world. And it gives, and it gives people an opportunity to see what it's like, you know, out there. I do know there's professors out there that are, I would say, part-time professors because they have full-time jobs and then they go and teach a class or teach something and they, maybe that's what he was doing. And they get a lot of experience. But, you know, I feel like when I was in college, I was guided by a lot of professors who never worked in any kind of industry. And I did not do the food science. So I can't, I can't blame the food science arena for this. I, I never heard of food science until I graduated from college. I had been out for, oh, I don't know. Let me think about this. Five years and had a totally different job. And I went to work as a recruiter and I started recruiting for food companies. And that's when I found out about it. And by then it was too late to go back to college. I would have gone back to college. I'm, li- I'm living vicariously through all of my, my applicants and my clients because I think these are the coolest jobs in the world, but I never got to do any of them. So I, I really wish I had heard of food science. And that's one of the reasons I do the podcast. I want people to see this and I want people to say, I should tell my kids about this or mm-hmm. I should, you know, or somebody sees it in high school or whatever and says, wow, I never even heard of this. And I've guided some people to down that, down that road. 
But like you did a podcast, I mean, a, a YouTube the other day. I saw it. I don't know when you did it, but it was the five different food jobs, food, food scientist jobs. And I thought that was great. There's really more like 55, but you hit on five major ones. And I thought that was really good because people wouldn't know that. They wouldn't have any idea that those jobs exist if it wasn't for some of this information that we're putting out. So that's why I do this. I mean, you're solving a lot of people's little crisis with their one their questions and learning some science, but I'm trying to get them all to work in the food industry. Part of my motivation is definitely that I didn't know about food science until I was at university. So I try to do a couple videos like like you said, like the careers one, or I have a couple videos uh, interviewing some of my food science friends, or, you know, this is what a product developer does with food, because I had like no, I, there were no resources that I was finding when I first found food science. And, and so I definitely think the more people are talking about it, you know, hopefully more high schoolers actually know that this is an option, because I really don't think people do yeah. What are your creative aspirations on for YouTube? Uh, right now, I honestly, I feel like the sky is the limit, but I would love to be in a place where I just shoot the videos and I get like a real great animator because I'm trying to make these cartoons. I'm like, I don't know anything about art and drawing. Like, like I, I got my PhD in food science. I'm really not doing well here. So I would love to make it to a point where like I'm responsible for the content, but I have experts in the other aspects of video making that can kind of take it off my hands. Ah, so I take it that your boyfriend's not in IT and can't help you there. No, he and he he used to be able to help me more, but now he has a big important job that he doesn't help me edit my videos or anything uh, anymore. Well, maybe we should do a shout out if there's anybody out there who's an animator who contact you and maybe you should do that on your and you should do that on your youtube you should do that you should do one on all the difficulties in making your youtube video and the things you wish you could do and see who contacts you this is a very good idea (laughs) (laughs) it's like networking easy you know just throw it out there and someone might tell someone who tells someone who contacts you no absolutely yeah, you know what you need is a 15-year-old animator. No, I agree. I need like a, a high schooler to help me. Yeah, see, we're putting it out there. Any high schoolers want to contact you? I might even know somebody. I know somebody who's into this. I will have them contact you. So where are you living now? So once my postdoc ended in the Netherlands, I moved back to the U.S. to Indianapolis, which is where my boyfriend, boyfriend lives. Okay, good. Good for you. Your family's still in Wisconsin? Yes. So that that is the only bummer. It's, it's a five-hour drive to see my family, but that is much more closer than the Netflix. Oh, yes. Yes. So just a shout out to your family. Hi, family. So anyways, Abby, thanks for being here today. I appreciate it. I appreciate learning about your YouTube and now knowing some of the the issues that you are going to overcome in the next year with this. And I look forward to you getting into teaching and getting a chance to get a whole new generation of uh, food scientists out there. So thank you very much for being here. It's been an absolute blast. Thanks. Alrighty. Bye-bye.